Hello and welcome into NCBI's Technology Podcast. This is episode number 34 for March 2015. Well, it's Stuart Lawler with you once again. Thank you very much for downloading and subscribing to our monthly technology podcast. Hope you're going to stay with us for the next hour or so because we'll be meeting our Chief Tech Support Officer, Paul Trainer. He'll be talking a really interesting discussion, actually, talking about the do's and don'ts of tech support and what we can and can't help you with. Steve Crawford's along from Azabath Technology talking about the products that his company produces. We meet Sharon Lyons, a technology trainer in NCBI, and she's beginning a new segment that we're calling Sharon's Shortcuts. And finally, Karul O'Mara is about to embark on a really interesting project associated with Braille displays, but he needs your help. That's all coming up on this month's edition of NCBI's Technology Podcast. Well, as we record this month and indeed as we publish our podcast on March 1st, the 30th annual Assistive Technology and Persons with Disabilities conference called CSUN is about to commence. It's um, taking place from the 2nd to the 7th of March in San Diego in California. Don't worry, I'm not there. I wish I was. I'm sitting in the studio in Dublin. Um, But it's going to be an exciting conference. There's a very major assistive technology exhibition and I suppose where visually impaired technology exhibitions and technology gatherings go it's the premier one and the biggest in the world so keep an eye on online over the next couple of days if you're on twitter or just on the internet in general following some of the assistive technology vendors there are usually a couple of announcements at csun and if you want to know what's going on um, keep your internet browser and other social media channels open now thanks to everybody who's gotten in touch with us remember that email address again technology podcast at ncbi.ie had some nice feedback from sean cassidy a regular correspondent to the podcast and also some nice feedback from martin lawler who's a regular listener to the podcast and always in touch with me and uh, speaking of martin you'll be able to hear him on next month's edition because he's going to be talking to us about the victor reader stream that's a device that really has come into its own in the last little while i don't have one myself but martin's a bit of a guru when it comes to the stream so he's going to be here to talk to us about it Barry O'Donnell has also been in touch uh, another regular listener and thanks Barry for your feedback now at any time remember if you do want to contact us technologypodcast at ncbi.ie Well, you're listening to NCBI's Technology Podcast for March 2015. We promised you in February that we were going to be introducing you to a familiar voice, and indeed a very familiar voice, if you happen to call NCBI's Telephone Tech Support Line. It's our one and only tech guru, Paul Trainer. Paul, welcome back. Hey, Stuart. How are you? It's um, great to be back. Good to have you back. We're sitting here at the in the top floor of NCBI's main building in a quiet room. Um, and I suppose the reason I said, well, the reason you wanted to come back really was because you and you and I have been talking a little bit lately about tech support and about the tech support service NCBI runs and we thought it would be a very good time to just remind people what we can and maybe more importantly what we can't do exactly know. yeah okay. it's it's been something that's been um, you know going on for a long time now as as people become more and more familiar with different uh, different forms of technology they you know I suppose they 
the first thing they'll do is ring up you know somebody that hopefully they think can help them but it's 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 not always uh, possible to do that unless you've got the piece of equipment sitting in front of you so so let's maybe just go maybe right to the basics and and look at somebody who gets a piece of technology from NCBI, either through a, a fund, maybe through the HSC, through what, what we, we call the Technical Aids Grant, which some people may be familiar with, or they purchase themselves. There is tech support available for that, right? There is, yeah. I mean, um, there's two there's two ways, three actually. Um, I would always say that probably when you get your equipment, whatever it is, and set it up at home, that maybe... Uh, the first thing you should do if you're not familiar with it is make a call to NCBI and get an IT trainer to come out and spend maybe a a couple of hours, you know, maybe over a period of a few weeks or whatever. The next then is if you have some general queries about the screen reader or about Windows in general or, you know, maybe um, setting up a piece uh, scanner or something like that to your computer, give me a call. If, if, if there's no one else available, give me a call. That's what I'm there for and I'll try and help you out and more importantly I'm getting into maybe doing it remotely more now than I used to do so being able to remote into your uh, computer and set it up would be uh, another way that I could probably help out so, so you're connected to someone's machine remotely they're, they're sitting yeah. there you, you make a connection and it's, it's, a, it's as though you're sitting in front of their machine yes brilliant okay so you're, you're available on the phone Monday to Friday people can call you up mm-hmm. what's the kind of what's the procedure if there is one and there's probably isn't a definite one but when you're calling tech support as a, as a user as someone who needs the support maybe you need it quick you're, you might have a deadline whatever what should people sort of be, be, be ready to do in order to maximise this tech support time they have with you well you know sometimes I get people ringing me up with a computer query or uh, um, ask me about some piece of equipment and I'll say well are you at the computer now and uh, occasionally they'll say to me well no I'm not at the computer now and um, I probably won't be at it for the next couple of days. I mean, I don't really think that's a suitable way to contact any technical support because uh, I know from my own experience contacting tech support lines and telling them that you're not at the particular piece of equipment there and then, uh, they're just not going to talk to you or deal with you. So, And, and it's, you're not helping yourself. Um, so it would be a good idea to be at your computer or have your piece of equipment in hand, have it switched on, have things ready to go, and then maybe we can take it from there and make some progress. And I suppose if you're using a device that speaks, whether it's a screen reader or maybe it's a a mobile device, uh, it's important that, uh, where possible, that you can hear it over the phone, right? Exactly. That's another thing. Um, Having um, your screen reader or or your portable device speaking through a set of headphones um, isn't going to help me unfortunately because I myself I'm totally blind yeah, and maybe, maybe I we depend. should establish that actually at the beginning. Yes. You, are, you, are, you are totally blind yes I'm totally blind myself and I depend a lot on voice feedback so you know that would always be a help 
And also what would be a help too is if perhaps you have a sighted person coming in fairly regular to the house or whatever, that maybe they might be available to help out when we are actually working on the equipment. Okay. So somebody calls up, you, you, you presumably fix either in person over the phone, you talk them through something, you mentioned this remote connection before, but, but you do lots of other things, don't you? I was going to ask you to talk us through an average day. There probably isn't an average day for a tech support person, because I'm sure every day is different. Well, there's it? not really, because um, I, I, for instance, in the morning time, I try to work out a sort of a schedule for myself during the day, but, uh, you know, in, in recent times, recent years, I've discovered it's just impossible to have a, sp- a proper schedule. I mean, for instance, when when a new version of software comes out or, or a piece of hardware that's becoming more and more used by uh, visually impaired people uh, is, is, being, is being used, then I have to read the manuals. And uh, as I should say at this point, that is always a great place to start when you get your new equipment. Read the manual because it's there you learn so much more about your equipment. So I read the manuals for the software or the hardware. Um, I have I'm subscribed to a lot of technology email lists. So that takes a lot, an, another bit of time from my day. Um, in between all this, I'm taking calls and noting down people's queries, problems, and trying to find, for those that I can't get solutions to over the phone there and then, I have to go off and research the problem and maybe then get back to those people and try and uh, apply whatever um, resolutions I might find for their issues. Um, also, like today, I have to come to Dublin from time to time to attend meetings and things like that with the other IT trainers. One of the more interesting things I think you've done, and, and a real way to, to get this, and we've been talking about it before in this podcast, peer support and peer learning, is you established a couple of years ago your, your VIP students list. Yes. And it's a really active online community, I suppose we can call it that, mm-hmm. that uh, people are supporting each other. Is, was that your intention? Yeah, that was that was something I always wanted. Even I suppose way way back, you know, um, I've I've always wanted something like that. And we have nearly two hundred people on that list at the moment, and it's there for anyone to join. Um, the uh, it, it's 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 a it's a free open list for people to join and put out their queries on various problems they're having with their technology or indeed to give help to other people who may have problems with their equipment so you know we talk about generally anything IT related on it um, because the way I see it is everything is of interest to to the members of the list has the pattern of tech support query maybe the regular <coughs> the regularity if that's the word of of support queries changed since that list was established are people getting the support elsewhere are people being able to maybe find the solutions themselves by asking the questions you think I think definitely so. It's also put people in touch with each other that, you know, while I don't recommend it, but some people just tend to build up a relationship between each other uh, out of meeting on the list, and they just email each other and um, get, you know, help that way. 
but I always prefer that people put their queries out on the list because what's what's what might not be my problem today could be could be down the road sometime. Okay, exactly. So it's really important that people can see each other's <coughs> yes. queries. Yeah. Yes. That's, yeah. Okay. So th- they're the kind of tools that are available at the moment. There's mm-hmm. the telephone support, NCBI's technology trainers, this very active online support called VIP students, and we'll put a link to that on the show notes for this episode. Okay. I want to touch on things that are potentially problematic for the tech support service and maybe for NCBI more broadly and I'm going to pull out a typical scenario Paul that I think you've got them and I've certainly taken calls I know some of our colleagues training have taken calls and someone rings and says I bought and I got a new tablet for Christmas can you help me end that's a difficult one isn't it it is because um, tablets there are so many different models of tablets as they are in lots of equipment but the, 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 the tablets have become so uh, fashionable now for a lot of people since um, JAWS has implemented a little bit of support and also there's the free screen reader NVDA. They, they have both implemented a little support for tablet users who are using screen readers. Also for people who are using magnification um, on the tablets. Um, again, for people like myself, it's not always easy to to uh you know help in those situations without a bit more information and a bit more study of the problem also um at this point in time i think it would be fair to say that windows 8.1 on tablet machines is not particularly accessible for those of us who are visually impaired and um, it's not an easy it's not an easy thing to offer a solution to how do I bring up the charms bar or the start menu or how do I do a search in Windows 8.1 on my tablet? Again, because there are so many different models and uh, you know the likes out there. So um, I think that something like that would be something best taught um, by. Uh, perhaps uh, a sighted IT person or, or whatever in, in the user's own home or by uh, a friend or something like that because okay. a lot of the time uh, the problem that the person is having it's not really a problem on the on the actual device it's just a learning thing I think it's also really important isn't it to, to ask people because and I know, I know this is difficult if you get a tablet for Christmas you can't really hand back the present but if you're thinking of buying a tablet find out what other visually impaired people are using before mm-hmm. you go out and buy and if it's if you're low vision you know I, I was only talking to someone the other day going into the shop and trying three or four of them which one works for you if you're if you're using screen reading you know, you you got to think about what what is going to be the best experience for what you want, haven't you? Yeah, I I think so. And again, I find it hard to move away from things like the Apple products because Apple have done a really good job on how they've how they've developed um, touch devices for uh, for use by blind people. They have you know got a really good strategy and a really good. Uh, format for their uh, accessibility software and um, for me I suppose things like the iPhone and the iPad 
uh, and that are very good in terms of touch devices. But I'm not I'm not going to recommend somebody use a Windows based tablet just at this point okay. in time. So, so you're not recommending at no. this moment Windows. No. Win- okay. Now the other I suppose aspect to tech support, and it often strays into training because there's a difference between tech support over the phone and training somebody because training is generally more detailed and I was telling you before we came on air a long time ago when I was doing a lot more tech support than I am now because you are the guru um, we got a call in and somebody wanted to know how to use mail merge and it's an interesting question and not everybody listening might agree with this because my take on it was if you're at a point in your computer usage Uh, career, for want of a better word, where you can use mail merge. Is it the role of NCBI support to tell you how to use mail merge, or should you have the tools to to, to look that up yourself? Where do you stand on that kind of stuff? Well, I would agree, Stuart, with with you. We talked about this, and, and, you know, again, it, it is a good point that if somebody is at the level where they're, you know, moved on to mail merge, then, you know, they should be able to look up uh, various sources of help that will um, give them uh, a good understanding of how to do mail merge in various um, uh, iterations of Microsoft Word. Um, I know there's a difference between using Microsoft Word 2003, 2007, 2010 and 13. So, you know, maybe a good place to start might be uh, Google which is personally where I get a lot of my information from. And I think it might be a good idea for people to learn how to use Google properly because there are ways of using the likes of Google in, uh, that will give you uh, the kind of result that you want. I mean, if you do a, if you do a search for mail merge, that's going to return results for just about every word processor that's out there. You need to be specific in your keywords when you're using something like Google search. And the more specific you are and, 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 and how you refine your search criteria in Google will give you really good results on how to do particular things such as a mail merge or, or, or a PowerPoint presentation or something like that. I think that's a topic for a tutorial. We're going to have to bring you back to do yes. that. Yeah, definitely. You've just volunteered yourself. <laughs> oh, what's, what's the most frustrating or difficult part of your job? And I, and I should say, maybe before I ask you about that, because you, I know personally you work hours and hours outside of the nine to five. You're very accommodating to people who may not be able to get tech support during the day. You're always writing up tutorials. What's, what's difficult about being a tech support officer? I think that I've realized you can't be all things to all people. Um, I find that I get messages left on my phone um, asking me, for instance, how do I do um, how do I do an import of a CD? into iTunes 12 or how do I, you know, various 
things like that that I don't normally use in my day-to-day work because it's not that I don't want to use them. It's because I just simply wouldn't have the time to use them. For instance, if you take the typical technical support people who work in, in companies such as, for instance, just say PayPal or Hewlett Packard or somewhere, they're assigned assigned a specific role a specific area of tech support and they don't they don't go outside that but in 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 our jobs Stuart and I'm sure you'll agree with this we we kind of have to be all things to all people yeah I used to say to somebody before about tech support in and it's not just in NCBI it's in the sort of AT area in the you know, not-for-profit, where, where people just, just need a little bit more support sometimes. Yes. You, you really have to get people from turning on the machine to, uh, we just talked about it there, these very advanced features in something yes. like, say, Microsoft Word. And there has to be, for from a, a resourcing perspective, and to make sure everybody gets access to your expertise, there has to be a bit of a, a start and end to that, hasn't there? There has to be some sort of line drawn somewhere because even at the moment, I find in the last six months things becoming more and more and more you know um high tech with people people are becoming more aware of what's out there and they want to be able to use these things and naturally enough and i probably would do the same myself and maybe you would too Stuart. if there's somebody that we think maybe can offer us some solution to to a feature on our new tablet or whatever that we we want to we want to be familiar with then we're going to ring them up and try and get that information and, and that. But the person on the other end of the phone may not necessarily have that information. And I find, I, I, I for one, am disappointed when I can't offer a solution. Of course. But I know from, I suppose, working with you over a long number of years, when you can't offer a solution, you go, you research it. We have a very active yes. uh, internal yes. staff list here for the tech yes. staff. Uh, people like Colin Kenny, who people are also probably aware of, who does tech support. Colin is excellent. Colin himself even would probably appreciate all this because yeah. he himself does have a, an immense workload trying to um, you know, deal with internal issues as well as external. So he's got a double, you know, um, um, job profile there. Okay. I think if we're to summarise this whole chat, Paul, because we, we've, we've touched on an awful lot of stuff and, and I think we've got a, a, well, at least I hope after, after listening to this, people have a better sense of what you do. But I think if we were to summarise this, we'd say that the, there is a, a tech support service available from NCBI. We'll give the phone number and email in a second. Okay. And we will do whatever we can to help. But you, we, we, we don't always meet everything. No, just use it as uh, uh, for what it can get, what, what you can get out of it, but don't abuse it. Okay. Because, you know, we, we want to help and we really do want to help, but it's just impossible to be all things to to everybody, you know. And okay, and, and use um, the resources, for example, yeah. like the uh, VIP yeah. students list, which we're going to put information on the show notes. Yeah. Paul has set that up. We also yeah. have your local technology trainer. Anyone who's listening yeah. doesn't know their technology trainer. Email technologypodcast at yes. NCBI. We can find out. And don't be afraid. If, if you want a tutorial written up on something, and if it's possible for me to write it up, and you feel that you would benefit better if I wrote out the steps in a tutorial and emailed them to you, then, you know, feel free to ask me. If I can do it, I'll say no problem. If I can't, I'll say, well, I either will have to research this or I just simply can't do it. But feel free to ask. And again, I suppose writing tutorials and doing that kind of stuff is, there's very, 
um, I suppose, specific pieces of information, isn't there, that, that you give to people who, yes. in particular, I suppose, uh, screen reader users, and you're breaking things down into steps yes. because, you know, your screen reader will say this, listen for these for these words or these cues. Yes. So, Paul, how can people, most importantly, after all that, how can people contact you? Okay, well, you can contact me in a couple of ways. Um, you can contact me by email, which is a very good way to contact me if you just simply want me to write out the steps for some issue or other that you're having. Maybe I can write them out for you, and that might be an easier uh, way for you to, 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 you know, deal with the problem. You can get me at support at sign ncbi dot ie my phone number uh, is one eight fifty nine two three o six o Alright, so support at ncbi.ie 1850 and the, your your tech support line is open Monday to Friday It is, and sometimes if I can, sometimes I will arrange maybe to talk to somebody after hours or at a, uh, on a Saturday or something like that Okay, so there is some flexibility built into yeah. that service as well Alright, yeah. Paul it's always nice to catch up with you, I think it's it's very nice to sort of get a, um, a maybe an internal or a behind the scenes sense of what goes on in tech support so I think that's what we tried to do today so, yeah. so uh, thanks for giving us the, the time and uh, I hope we're going to bring you back uh, on a future edition of the podcast in the not too distant future love to yeah and thanks for having me Stuart Now, if you like puzzles and games, talking, typing, tutors, word processors, and even an element of an email client, then you need to have a look at a UK-based company called Azabat, uh, who I actually only came across very recently, but I'm absolutely delighted to have done so. Their founder is a gentleman by the name of Steve Crawford, who joins us on the line. Steve, welcome to our technology podcast. Oh, good to be here. Great to have you here. Um, Azabat's not a, a new company. I, I only heard about you a little while ago, but you guys have been going for about 10 years, right? Um, yeah, it started around about 2005. Now, when you started in 2005, uh, you were a volunteer helper with your local blind society, is that correct? That's correct, yeah. And you wrote a piece of software long before the guys in Silicon Valley had it, uh, called Twitter. Um, yeah, that's a, an amusing anecdote. Um, as, I, as you said, I was, I was volunteering for the, for the Blind Society, and they got me to try and help out a chap who, who was totally blind, who'd never used a computer before. And I'd never used JAWS or Halo or anything like that before, so it was quite an experience. And um, after we, we sort of took those away... Um, I thought, well, what this chap really needs is a is a talking word processor that will just do the basics. And I looked around and I didn't see anything that would suit suit his needs. So I decided to write something. Um, what I what I came up with um, was a a talking word processor with internet, a typing tutor, email resource. And so I called it Twitter. There was nothing else called Twitter at that stage. And um, that's, that's how that one started. So I, I, um, my understanding, obviously, is that that piece of software, I suppose, has been replaced by all the other suite of uh, applications that you have on your website, right? Well, it, weren't, it wasn't initially. Um, 
Twitter wasn't wasn't a, an outrage, an outrageous success or anything. Um, only sold a few copies of it. Um, but what I did do the same year that I went to Side Village in Birmingham with with Twitter, uh, which 2005, which um, was that I, I started writing a couple of games. Um, the chap said to be one day. I only bought the computer so I could have some fun on it, and it suddenly struck me that that really there was nothing out there um, that he was able to to. To, to sort of play, really. It's true, because historically, I think, you know, people seem to think that, you know, when you're visually impaired, or I think if you have disability in general, but maybe more specifically if you're visually impaired, the computer is for work and for communication, you know, and it, and it is for all those things. But I think increasingly, people are saying, no, we want to play games. And sure, why not, you know? Well, I think, I think um, sure, you know, the computer's there to, you know, it's, it's a great tool for for. Um, for doing work and, and all the other essential things in life. But really, it's when you're learning to, to use a computer, a great thing is to, to just play a few games from now and from time to time. That's, that really sort of hooks you in and gets, gets you over the fear of using the computer. If you can associate it with something more pleasurable, then you, you'll learn more. So let's jump forward to 2015, Steve, 10 years ahead. And Azabat mm-hmm. is very much going strong. And there's a whole uh, catalogue of software on your website. And maybe we just talk briefly about some of the things that are available, because I suppose one of the most fundamental things to using a computer is learning to type. And you've ticked that box by providing a typing tutorial. Um, well, two, in fact. I did a, a beginner's typing tutor uh, back in about 2007 or 2008, somewhere like that. And um, that really was, was very straightforward, just teaching you the positions of, of the keys by just sort of repeatingly asking the, you to press the keys and that. Um, I, I then added to that a few years later with an advanced version, which has got um, uh, a lot more sort of intense, really. So I, I create that I cater for both um beginners and advanced really with that okay you have a talking word processor you mentioned the twitter program earlier on but but you've something slightly different now you have a talking word processor and if i'm not mistaken you can kind of add different i suppose components to this word processor to allow it to do different things you can you 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 buy it on a cd but then you can add the facility to use it with a pen drive and even to add an email client to the word processor is that correct that's right. So the idea was to, to make it firstly low cost. So it comes in at, at £30 for the basic product. Um, and for that you get a word processor or rather a text editor. You can, you can type letters and, and notes and things like that and have it talk, talk it back to you and talking as you're typing it. Um, and it's modular insofar as if you want to add an email capability to it, you can pay £20 extra and buy an email um, add-on, if you like. Um, there's also... Um, I quite like the portable aspect where you can have the software and all your files on a dongle or a USB dongle type, type device, pen drive, so you, you don't have to own a computer necessarily. And so I've gone down that route for the extra £20 you can add everything onto a dongle that just um, you just pop it into a computer and and you've got what all your files and everything with you. And presumably, Steve, 
if I'm, I don't know, in my friend's house and he has a PC, but it doesn't have any speech on it, I can plug my dongle in, I get my talking word processor and all my files up straight away. Um, yeah, it, it just needs to have SAPI enabled on the um, on the computer, but that, that should be there. It should be there anyway, yeah, okay. should be there anyway. All right. Um, there's so many types of games on the website. Uh, and I, by the way, we're going to put a link to your website on the show notes for this episode. But um, I, I'd never done, I, I've done crosswords with sighted people, uh, you know, when they're reading out the clues to me on the paper. It's a great thing to do with a family sitting on a Sunday or something. You've got a computer-based crossword game. Um, yeah, but um, I'm not the, the, the world's greatest um, developer of crossword puzzles. Uh, I leave that up to um, other sort of people who have more expertise in it than, than I do. So what I what I what I did was I licensed the content of of from various sources um, to create volumes of puzzle game of, of talking crossword puzzles. So I've got at the moment I've got three different volumes of of crosswords. So in 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 volume one, it contains seventy crossword puzzles um, that were written by. Chat from SW Retail. The um, volume two has got seventy puzzles, which I licensed um, from the Guardian um, newspaper. And volume three has got seventy puzzles, which I licensed from the Daily Telegraph. And uh, and all these games, Steve, the the crosswords, the word processor, and some of the other stuff we're going to talk in about a second. They're all self-voicing. Is that correct? Uh, that's correct. They were designed to be, as Albert Einstein said, as simple as possible, but no simpler. Um, the idea is that you don't need to install any software um, on on the computer, and it will just work from putting the CD in the drive. So the, I, I licensed a UK-accented voice, and they, they'll all come up and speak to you um, and, and give you instructions. There's, also, there's, a, there's a visual screen on there as well. So if you have um, sighted people, they can, they, well, they can see what's going on as well. All right, let's have a chat about some of the word games. I love Hangman, and I see you've got Hangman mm-hmm. there. There's, there's all sorts of uh, word puzzles, which are really good to um, just to keep, you, to keep you challenged, I suppose, aren't they? Well, that's, it's just about keeping the grey matter going, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and and you have some uh, games then with um, puzzles, uh, you know, um, moving uh, squares around, and I think some battleship and uh, those kind of, I suppose, more of what we might consider more graphic-oriented um, games. Um, yeah, I, I, what I've done is I, I haven't... I, I've released the games as, as a collection. So on a CD, you don't just get one game, you get typically four or more games. And they're usually along this, a similar sort of a theme. Um, so even if you buy a CD and you don't like one of the games, there's there are other games that you can play on there. Um, it, it's not cost efficient to, um, to to make a CD for every single game I've ever written because sure. there to be too many CDs. So um, volume one. I can just run through some of some of the examples. Volume one, for example, is is for. They didn't really fit into any categories. The first. The first games I wrote, really, they were just games that I liked. Um, so there was a version of Yahtzee, a version of Blackjack, a version of Connect 4, and a version of Windows Solitaire. Um, then in Volume 2, I went for uh, word games. So you've got things like Hangman, Anagrams, a target game, a countdown-type game, 
and a number crunch. Uh, then volume three, um, I tried something a bit different, um, and uh, they, they, they were sort of common board games, uh, uh, like Battleships um, and Memory, um, Sudoku, and uh, UXB, that's an exploded bomb. It's, it's um, uh, what do you call it, Mind, it's like a Minesweeper, minesweeper game. Yeah. They're, okay. they're all based on a, a sort of a grid-type um, grid type games, really, where you have like a grid of, of letters and numbers. Two of those games, Battleships and Memory, were designed to be um, kind of interactive in the sense that you could have two people playing it. You're not, you can either play against the computer or you could play against an opponent. So you could have... Um, well, in battleships, we've quite a lot of examples of, uh, of children playing with a sighted parent and taking it in turns, and there's no sort of um, advantage to, to having sight in that case. I was just going to ask about that, because you, you mentioned graphics there a moment ago. There is a, a visual element to these games, so let's say, a, a, I don't know, a, a blind child and sighted, um, sighted sibling could, could play along together? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, I'm not visually impaired myself, um, so I need to when I'm writing the software and you'd be able to see what I'm doing really okay so so Steve there's probably lots of people listening to this interview right now dying to get their hands on the stuff um, they can go to obviously to azabat a-z-a-b-a-t dot co dot uk there are demos available on that on the on the website aren't there um yeah they, they're not I'm, I'm not I'm not big into, da- into software downloads over the internet so I have I have a demo CD which I can post out to anybody who wants one. Okay. Which has got copies of the copies of the games. You, you basically you can play them a, a certain way and then it stops. And but certainly the 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 pricing looking at on your website they're extremely reasonable and uh, I think well no doubt they would give hours of uh, of fun. Well, try to please. Good stuff. So presumably people can can order and can purchase from your website, or indeed they're available. Uh, quite a number of your games are available through ourselves here at NCBI. Um, I believe so. Yeah. Good stuff. Um, so Steve, congratulations. I, I've no I've no doubt Azabat's going to continue. We look forward to new games coming down the track. And um, for the moment, thanks a million for chatting to us, and uh, hope to stay in touch. That's great. Thank you very much, Stuart. You're listening to NCBI's Technology Podcast for March 2015. I do hope you're enjoying the programme so far. And I'm delighted to be introducing a brand new feature that uh, we're going to visit regularly, I hope, on the podcast. And indeed, I hope we're going to get some feedback and indeed questions for the lady who's running our feature. That's Sharon Lyons, and we're calling it Sharon's Shortcuts. Sharon, you're very welcome. Thank you, Stuart. Great to have you as a a kind of a regular um, contributor now, I suppose. Yes, great. Just for people who might know you, you you work for NCBI. Tell us what you do. Yes, I uh, I work in the training centre. Um, I teach computers mainly, uh, right all the way from learning the keyboard, learning the keys on the keyboard, right the way through to kind of ECDL lessons. Um, yeah, and uh, and I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of uh, of keys and keyboard shortcuts. 
Uh, as anybody who knows me will know, um, I'm, I've been accused of actually stopping people from using a mouse in my classroom, which is, is not true. I do let people use a mouse. I just encourage people to use keyboard shortcuts. So, so maybe let's just talk about this for a minute, because um, you're fully sighted. Let's just, just to clarify yes. that. Uh, you've been using computers for a long time. A very long time. Uh, but so why? Because I would have thought for sighted people, the mouse is so... Uh, maybe, it, like, is it quicker? Is it handier? You can just whiz around with the mouse, click on things. Why are you so... Why, why keyboards? Well, um, I learned to touch type uh, quite early on in my computer days, and um, I always found touch typing is is uh, actually is proven to be very very quick. Um, it's very good for your posture to actually use all your fingers on the keyboard rather than just a couple. So it's it's very good for anybody uh, to learn to touch type. Um, but the thing is, if you touch type, then your, your fingers are on the keys all the time. So if you want to do something like, uh, you know, if you want to put bold on or, or, or anything on the computer, if you want to use a mouse, so you've got to take your hands off the keyboard, go and find the mouse, move it to the top of the screen, find where the bold setting is and click it. And I just find that control B to put bold on is much, much quicker. <laughs> Because if, my hands are already on the keyboard. If you didn't know that shortcut, there's the first one. <laughs> Control me. So, uh, I suppose as a, as a sighted user, um, let's say outside of your training, because you're obviously teaching people who are blind and have low vision here, do you use shortcuts just like for your own personal use? I use them all the time. Okay. Yeah. Um, in, fa- in fact, uh, I talk about having a nervous twitch um, when I'm typing Word documents, and that's Control S to save. So when I stop typing and I'm thinking about what I'm going to type next, I do control S and I've saved my... There's this another is, one for you. This is our second show. <laughs> and, and just tell me, because you're, you clearly, you're, how, how fast are you, you typing? Like? Oh, gosh. Um, the last time I did a... I must do another... Uh, we have a typing tutor with a timing test on it here. I must do another one to find out and tell you next time. But um, I think it's around 42 words a minute. Wow. Something okay. like that. Okay. Well, you're quicker than me, Stuart. So. Uh, I, I, I was surprised the last one I did. I, I was a bit 50, slow. 50-something, uh, I think. I don't know. I, I my, know. The problem is, it, I always remember when, I, when we learned about typing, the, uh, the teacher was killed telling us in school, and this was on manual typewriters. It's not about speed, it's about accuracy. And, and she's right, of course. It is, you know. Mm, it is, yes. So um, you, you get your accuracy first. Yeah. And then as the more and more you type, the faster and faster you get. Okay, so let's talk a bit about the, the first thing we were going to do today was talk, or at least in this segment, was talk about something that really gave people a lot of headaches a couple of years ago, Sharon. And I, I sort of initially thought it was just blind people, in particular, I suppose, screen reader users, who, when they introduced ribbons mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. Word 2007, I think it was, was the first time yeah, we saw it. Yeah. But then I talked to a few fully sighted friends who said, I absolutely hate this new <laughs> ribbon. So I realised it's not actually a, a screen reader specific thing. Do they give you a headache? Well, they, it was a big change. Um, you know, you used to have menus and toolbars, and then if you, you kind of were well used to that, and then and then they brought in the ribbons, and it's it's kind of a lot of stuff at the top of the screen. So it's quite busy on the screen, and it's 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 kind of hard to find what you're looking for on the ribbon. So visually let's say compared to a menu bar which was I suppose a strip going across the top of the screen Mm. that you could pull down and Mm -hmm. you know they're still in lots of Windows applications what does the ribbon look like? It's it's like um, a band across the top of so if anyone was familiar with toolbars before the toolbars were maybe didn't take up quite as much space 
it's like a, about two inches at the top of the screen of, um, of different features that you can click on with the mouse. Okay. And of course, the, the thing as well with the ribbon is it has kind of categories, hasn't it? There are, there are sort of um, high-level high categories, and inside those, then, there are, there are sub, subsections, I suppose. Yeah, it calls them tabs. So you kind of have things like the Home tab, but it has most of the stuff that you would do on it. And there's the Insert tab for inserting things like a table or an image. Um, we're specifically talking about Word here, I guess, because that's the, the application that's most commonly used by people. Um, there's a review tab that's got the uh, you know the spell check in it and, and view tab for changing the the display of the document on the screen. When I used the ribbons first in, in 2007 and probably more so in 2010 because I graduated to that to that um, version pretty quick, I found that little things I could do in, in Word 2003 so quickly, like insert a table, took me ages to learn how to do those as, I suppose, efficiently as I used to. Mm. And I did feel it, it took a fair amount of my time just playing around with these ribbons, finding where options were. Yes. Now, yeah. when you learn the shortcuts, of course, uh, we're going back to shortcuts again, <laughs> it is so much more f- um, quick. Yeah, yeah. So it's a big time saver, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So you have, you have kind of your, your direct, what I call your direct shortcuts which are things like control b for bold control i for italic control u for underline control s to save control p to print and then you have your kind of indirect shortcuts where you kind of go up to the ribbons um so for example alt h would be the home ribbon and then if you knew what you were looking for you can actually then press another letter or a couple of letters to get something um on that ribbon, so like B for borders or something yeah. like that. There, 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 you know, there are some interesting ones because the insert menu used to always be at Alt I, yes. and now it's Alt N. Yes, so it's N now. Yes, you just uh, remember now. these things. I like keyboard shortcuts, but I can't explain. Yeah, kind of thing. fair enough. <laughs> I don't no, know where they get the, no, we, we wouldn't expect the letters from. <laughs> to go to Microsoft, I'm just going to explain that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so th- th- that's the kind of that's Word and the ribbons, and and we've mentioned a couple of shortcut keys already today that people mm-hmm. might like to use. But one of the things you wanted to, to this was the main thrust of today. You wanted to talk to us about the applications key in Word. Yes. Now we we're saying about how it's complicated to go up to the ribbons and try and find what you want but if there's no direct keyboard short like a shortcut like control s um what i tell my students to do is if in doubt hit the applications key and the applications key will give you a what's called a context menu which has a list of things that you use quite regularly so in that applications key there will be things like font um styles paragraph um bullets numbering Uh, So you can access all them just by pressing the Applications key. It's actually the equivalent to a right-click with the mouse. And the Applications key is, uh, on on a standard keyboard, it is over to the right-hand side. It's next to the right-hand control, so the other side of the uh, arrow keys. We have Microsoft Word open here on a computer. We're sitting on a machine running Windows XP. Sorry, Windows 7. These are not uh, screen readers specific, by the way. It's important to say that. We're running JAWS here, but these are... Document 1-Microsoft Word Print View Edit. And you're saying now if I press the applications key, is that right? So I'm going 1, 2, 3 to the right from my space bar. Applications menu cut of available. Copy of available. Dot, dot, dot. And of course, most of these are unavailable because there is no text. We have a blank document. Yeah, yeah. Paragraph dot 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 bullet split button 
number eight split button style sub menu hyperlink dot 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 look up split button synonym sub menu so a lot of the the uh, options, I suppose, that you would have to dig through the ribbons are right here. Yes, yeah, exactly. So, um, so rather than having to, to search up in the ribbon area, you can just hit the application key and go down to uh, font or paragraph. What happens with font, it will actually open up the original font dialogue that if you used, well, if you've used Word at all over the past what, 15 years or so, you'd be familiar with the font settings dialogue that comes up. Uh, and then you would just tab around and find your settings. Same, to, same with paragraph. So you can tab around happily and find your settings that you may be a bit more familiar with than actually hunting around on the ribbon. What a great start to this new uh, part of the podcast. We have lots of exciting shortcuts coming up. I don't know a lot of them at all. Sharon always has new ones for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have any ideas, if you have a shortcut you want to share with us, or indeed a question about a shortcut for Sharon, send an email to technologypodcast at right. ncbi.ie. We'd love to hear from you. Sharon, yes. for the moment, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Thank you, Stuart. Now, if you use refreshable Braille, and I think particularly if you're interested in Irish Braille, you might be very interested to talk with Karul O'Mara because he's undertaking a very interesting survey and is joining us on Skype to tell us all about it. Karul, welcome back to our technology podcast. Good to have you back. Hi, Stuart. It's nice to be back. I think we spoke to you a a long time ago, episode three or four, I think. So uh, good to have you back. Um, Just before we maybe talk about the survey that you're embarking on and how people can get involved, just tell us a little bit about NVDA and Braille displays, because that's really what it's all about. Yes, I, I think, in fact, NVDA is becoming an extremely exciting product at the moment. It has certainly outstripped JAWS in many functions, given its recent update. I got very interested in, in NVDA recently, and particularly when Katrina Nicolone mentioned through Ronan that she was trying to get a Braille display working for her Irish students. She teaches Irish around the country, as I think you've covered before. Um, and she is uh, trying to enable people to type in, in grade two Braille in Irish, using Irish Braille, and have it reflect on the refreshable Braille display, but end up as a word file in Irish. So as they type in Irish Braille, and, and, for, and I suppose we should say, for people listening outside Ireland who don't know Irish Braille, uh, maybe this might, may not be exactly relevant, but for example, if you typed the word law, which means day, L-A, father, mm-hmm. you'd, you would write L and the sign for and or a father, which is one two, three, four, and six, that will actually write an A father in print. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. It's another language. Um, The Irish language itself is not the same as English, given that we have some listeners who might know that. And so it's a separate language by itself, separate syntax, separate spelling, and the Braille reflects that. Um, And for instance, it doesn't have any K, it doesn't have a Q, it doesn't have a W, an X, a Y, or a Z. And so these are spare characters uh, which are taken on board into Irish. So it's a whole different syntax for people to learn. So the idea is obviously because we have Braille in within NVDA already, we have it in JAWS, it's in a lot of the screen readers. You want to have Braille in with a screen reader in Irish. 
Absolutely. See, the old way of teaching Braille, which was dead right, was you typed Braille on your Parkins, you read it, you felt it on the paper, and you could discuss the uh, outcome, you could hand up the outcome to somebody else to look at for you. And given uh, remote methods that we have nowadays, that's not really on. Sitting there with a Perkins Brailler isn't what people do anymore. So the Braille display as a separate unit with a uh, speech and um, Braille code to type in um, doesn't give a, a, a sense of the full uh, potentiality of Braille. And that's why uh, we need to get a, this interchange working between people. Okay, now Braille displays, I think, from the Irish and UK context have been interesting because historically, I suppose, they haven't been as prevalent as they have been, say, in Europe. Um, but, but you're trying to do a piece of work at the moment to find out, I suppose, what's around in Ireland in particular and what people are using. Yes, I am. Because Braille displays are extraordinarily expensive, unnecessarily expensive, in my view. €6,000 for a device would be the average. And they are the same technology that was brought in in 1989. So that puts them about 26 years old and they're still being sold for the same price as they were originally. And I think that's an absolute shame. The old machines actually do still work. The only problem with them is that we don't have drivers to connect them to screen readers because they're no longer in fashion. I'm doing a survey to see where are the old machines? What old machines are there? What machines are people using? Not with a screen reader, but just as a desktop device to make notes and manage for their Braille purposes. So just give us an example of it. Maybe um, what you term an old, an old Braille Yeah, the, one of the most outstanding models is the Braille Light 18 cell. Okay. Braille and Braille Light 2000 and the Braille Light Millennium, which is its partner. And then that was succeeded then by the Braille Light uh, 20, which is a 20 cell display, and the Braille Light 40. These were different from the early Braille light in that they introduced the extra two keys that Americans love for 8-dot Braille. And 8-dot Braille is uniquely American, it's not UK at all, but it's come in now to use in terms of computers, so it's become uh, a worldwide method of brailing. So the older style note takers, Karul, if I'm correct, because the, the newer ones, as you've said, I suppose are being used with screen readers, things like the human word, braille notes or the hymns, mm-hmm. braille sense. The older, older note takers did work in, let's say, DOS systems, but they, they don't have compatibility at this moment with Windows. That's right. When the braille life was brought out, it was revolutionary. Now you could connect to your DOS screen reader uh, and braille away and you could operate the, the screen, you could type in your word, everything we're looking for. But that was with Windows uh, 95 and before that, those versions, those older versions, which are well gone. And the drivers did not travel with them because the drivers were keeping up with the latest product all the time. And those were superseded very quickly. So at the moment, people who have these uh, older, let's say, Braille displays mm-hmm. are, are, are not able to take advantage of this really cool Irish Braille technology you've been talking about there a few minutes ago. That's right. Okay, so what do you need people to to tell you at the moment? I need them to tell me if they have a Braille unit, that is a Braille note taker is what they were generally called in the old days. Um, It probably has speech output. It has a Braille display and you Braille in with the Perkins style keyboard of seven keys or nine keys if you have the the extra two, the dot seven and dot eight. Um, beside the spacebar, that you you have these devices, you may not have connected them to a screen reader. I'm interested because I have a a student programmer available for an intern who's 
um, commissioning body is prepared to do uh, pro bono development of a driver for NVDA to interface with a popular old braille display or as many as we can. Even if it's the whole Braille life range, we could probably do that, you know? Because at the moment, uh, within NVDA, there are a number of, I suppose, the popular uh, newer Braille displays are supported and you can connect them and then, I suppose, go into the NVDA configuration and select them. Isn't that correct? That's correct. You've got things like the um, the Braille Note. You've got the Focus Braille, which is now the equivalent of Freedom Scientific's Braille, uh, Braille Light 2000 of 10 years ago. Um, they, the Focus Braille systems, you have human wares products, and you have various German ones, uh, Meyer and Baum. Uh, no doubt there are many more used in the American services, but we don't see them here in this country. Mostly we would see Packmates, Focus, Braille Notes. Okay. What's, what's involved in, in creating a driver? Is that a, is that a big piece of work? I mean, you mentioned a student programmer. Is, will this be a, a fairly major project? You, I, mean, I think it'll have to be written in C++ or in Java. Um, if, effectively, what the driver is, it takes the codes that are coming through the Braille display and maps them onto the kind of codes that make things happen in a word processor. In other words, if you want to move the cursor right, you have to have a particular code, and that's going to come from the Braille light. At the moment, what comes from the Braille light is um, another code that it means nothing to the computer. So you have to have an interface that says, give me that code and I'll attach it to the cursor. Give me that code and I'll attach it to the tab key. Give me that one and I'll attach it to the page change. So the driver, I suppose, um, gives this information to the screen reader, which in turn is then able to power or communicate with the Braille display. That's it. Okay. So so how can people contact you and tell you what they're using and tell you, I suppose, what they're using their technology for as well, which is probably what you're interested in? Yeah. If, hopefully they're all on one of the three lists, the VIP student list, the VIP, Irish VIP list, or the VIX list. And you'll see there, I've sent out an email today if you missed it, have a look again and see it. Um, it gives you a sort of model. I just need the name of the Braille device you're using, its version, whether you use it with a Braille, uh, with a screen reader already, and if you do, which one, and what other uses you have for it. Just four elements is all I need. I don't need your name. I'm not keeping names, but uh, of course I'll know your name from it, and that will help to keep track of where the device is, but I won't be using that for the survey. All I want is those four points. What machines, how many are in use, and what are they used for? And the people who respond or who are interested in getting involved in this or telling you this information, could they be potential testers in the future for a Oh, driver? God, yes. Yeah. I, I, in fact, I'm going to keep all of those emails that come into me from this device. As I say, I'll keep them private. But uh, with their permission, I'll send out an invitation to them to be a user. That sounds great. We will put you. your email address on the show notes as well for this episode so people can find it uh, on the on the website if they want to yes. get in touch with you. And you know, Stuart, I'd like CFIT to be involved in this as well with those resources, if, if that's possible. Absolutely. We might talk about that. So you know? we, can, we can chat about that. Carol, mm-hmm. it's, it's something I'd like to stay in touch with because I think, you know, when we heard about Irish Braille with Ronan last year on the podcast, it's very exciting. Yeah. Uh, both now speech and Braille working within NVDA you know, Braillein seems like the next logical step. So um, all the best to it. And thank you for giving us your time and and talking about it today. My pleasure, Stuart. Thanks a million. And I believe too that Braille is a fantastic system. I think we must not lose it. It is an amazingly efficient way of making notes and transferring information.
So let's keep it going. Brilliant. Thanks, Karul. Thank you. Well, that was Karul Amara speaking to me earlier on this week, uh, all about something that I certainly find very interesting, older Braille technology um, using being used, I suppose, with modern day computers and software. And it might be the time where you are looking at your old note taker. You've had it for a while. Maybe it's sitting around and you haven't used it in a bit and you're not quite sure what to do with it. Um, give Karul a shout because who knows, you could be using it very soon with NVDA uh, if you'd like to participate in that survey. Now, we will put Karul's email address on the show notes for this episode, but if you haven't got it there, you can contact him by emailing Karul, that's C-E-A-R-B-H-A-L-L, dot O-M-A-R-A, O-M-E-A-R-D-H-A, at B-L-B-C dot I-E. So that's Karul dot O-M-A-R-A at B-L-B-C dot I-E. Do get in touch and uh, get involved in that very important research. That's just about it for this month. Thank you to our contributors, Paul Trainer, Sharon Lyons, Steve Crawford, and of course, Karula Mara. Join us in April when, amongst other things, Martin Lawler's here talking the stream, and Derry Lawler, no relation, is giving the first of a series of podcast tutorials all about the Mac. That's it from Stuart Lawler. Have a good month. Thank you for listening, and see you in April. Bye bye.